who is now Christy Burleson. And I was so nervous that early that day I thought, I'm going to really try to prepare for this mentally and psychologically. And so I went to a candy store and I bought three boxes of candy. This was unusual. I don't do this every day, although you might think by looking at me I do. But I bought a $5 box, a $10 box, and a $15 box of candy. And uh, the candy store owner was a little bit concerned and he said, why are you buying so much candy? And I said, well, I, I don't know how my first date tonight is going to go. If it doesn't go very well, I'll at least be courteous and give her the $5 box of candy. If it goes okay, and I think there might be a second date, I'll give her the $10 box of candy. And if this is just the best date ever, and I know we have a future, I'll give her the $15 box of candy. And so sure enough, that night we had planned on eating dinner at her parents' house, and we got there and were situated, and her father kindly asked me to lead the prayer before dinner. And so I remember that vividly. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And after the prayer, Christy looked over and whispered. She said, I did not realize you were such a spiritual man. And I said, well, I didn't realize your dad owned a candy store. So there you go. <laughs> Those kinds of moments happen. And when you meet a person for the first time, you never know how it's going to go. But I'm thankful that tonight we have the Word of God before us. And with the Word of God before us, I know that things go well. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking together in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. One of those occasions when Jesus calms a storm. Have you ever been scared? I mean really scared. You didn't know what was around the next turn of life. I have been. Maybe you were sitting in a not a very well lit storm shelter listening as a tornado passed through. If you've ever been there, you'll never forget what that felt like, what that sounded like. I'm sure there are many of our brothers and sisters in Oklahoma right now who could talk about that vividly. Perhaps you saw doctors confer right outside the room after performing an exam because they had found something wrong with you and wanted to talk about a treatment plan. Maybe you're watching the Weather Channel as a huge hurricane churned in the Gulf heading towards your state, your church community, your family, your school. Maybe you were scared in a professional setting when some professors sat around and discussed a project that you had been working on for some time and they thought it might need revamping, which meant more time and more money for you away from your family. Perhaps you were sitting with your wife as the nurse tried to pull up an image of your baby in her womb for the first time and seeing nothing, no heartbeat. And again, seeing those doctors huddle. Maybe you were scared when they took your child into their arms at six weeks old to do surgery on a mass in his neck and you prayed that it would not turn out to be what you thought it might be. Perhaps your other child was diagnosed with a disease that had the potential of changing her life forever. Maybe you were in a meeting and your phone rang and you got a voicemail telling you that a close family member or friend had died and as you sat there pondering how that could have happened, your life changed forever. Those are some times in my life that I've been scared. But when you read the Bible, sometimes you might get the impression that these people were never scared. Especially Romans. I mean, we watch television and movies about the Roman Empire and we think they're all a bunch of gladiators. Full of muscle and determination and even debauchery, but certainly not fear. These were tough men and women. But there was at least one thing that we know the Romans were afraid of. The sea. Many Romans feared the sea and ultimately only believed that the sea could be controlled by the gods or goddesses. The sea was considered to be a place of fear and chaos and uncertainty. 
Even though Rome controlled the seas from a military perspective, they certainly could not control the sea when they were the ones sailing her. One writer noted about how the, the Romans were nervous as traveling. He said, time and time again, their writers, Roman writers, that is, fearfully bring up the mere finger's breadth of plank that separates a sailor from watery death. And the farewell poems they address to friends departing for overseas sometimes read like eulogies of their certain death. Travel was difficult and was inconvenient. The first century historian Josephus talks about the danger of trying to find a good dock to put your boat in and how letter carriers could be detained for months on the stormy seas. The sea was unpredictable and scary. And the Bible picks up on this in certain places like Genesis 6 through 8. What happened when the heavens opened and the fountains of the deep were broken apart? What happened when Noah describes the land being turned into sea? What happened in Exodus when the Egyptians at the Red Sea chased the children of Israel into that divided, parted water in Exodus 34. And so by the time Jesus Christ walks this earth, according to the literature of the day, just about everybody on the planet was terrified of the sea. And they viewed the sea as, as dangerous at best or demonic at worst. Many were terrified and vulnerable when they were not on dry land. And so when you see Jesus calm the sea and on at least two occasions, in Mark 4 and in Mark 6, one of those passages, Mark 4, being parallel tonight in the passage we're going to examine together, Matthew chapter 8. Why was Jesus seemingly always calming storms? What was He teaching us and what was being demonstrated on those occasions? Well, one, I think it connects Jesus to God and shows how only the divine could, could truly control the sea. And just like you see God control the seas in Genesis or Exodus, you see the Son of God control the sea in the Gospel. You see in the Psalms, for example, several references to how terrified people were of the water and how only God could calm the sea. Only God could manipulate the water. And in the New Testament, you see the Son of God doing that on at least two separate occasions, and God Himself doing that in Acts 27 with the miraculous saving of Paul in the midst of his shipwreck. Secondly, Jesus' power over the sea demonstrated a power that most people could only dream about. In other words, most people showed fear while Jesus showed great courage. You might recall how the seasoned fishermen were there in that boat on Galilee. We often sing about that event. Master, the tempest is raging. The billows are tossing high. And those seasoned fishermen even were terrified when the storm rolled over those mountains of Galilee. But Jesus on one occasion was awoken in the boat and calmed the storm. On the other occasion, you might recall, he walked out to them. Peter tried to walk out but took his eyes off Jesus and failed. But once Jesus stepped in the boat, what happened? The storm stopped. And Jesus was able to show on many occasions, much like Jonah a few generations earlier, as soon as he hit the water, remember the storm was stopped and those sailors went to Nineveh and the various places telling what it was they had witnessed when the prophet of God caused the storm to be stopped, when in actuality it was God causing that storm to stop. And so Jesus shows his divine power. Jesus shows courage while most men, even seasoned fishermen, showed fear. And third, Jesus' power over the sea I believe, points forward to a future hope. In other words, the God who can control the sea, the God who can control the land, the Creator and the Sustainer, our God, will eventually bring history to an end. And the unrest and the bad news that fills the airwaves tonight 
of tragedy, of terrorism, of heartache, of death and destruction will eventually be reversed by the God who can cause all of those things to come to a stop. The same question that the apostles asked generations ago still applies to us. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? So tonight, I'm not just talking about the sea and I'm not just talking about literal storms. I'm talking about an occasion when Jesus demonstrates the power He has over the physical sea and secondarily the power He has over the storms of life. We, if we had been in that boat with the Lord, certainly would have been scared too. You know that when seasoned fishermen are shaking in their boots, we also would have been terrified. And yet you see the calm and the peace that our Lord Jesus can bring in the midst of great storms and trials. And tonight we want to be reminded of His power. If you have a Bible, would you look with me at Matthew chapter 8? Let's begin reading in verse 23 and then we'll focus in on what it is that occurs in this passage as we study together. We read in the context of Matthew 8 starting in verse 23. When he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? There's a reason Jesus was asleep in the boat. Many talk about it being nighttime, perhaps, and it certainly could have been. But we also know that this was the end of a very long day. If you read back into what happened previously before this record, which begins in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, you have Jesus coming off of a mountain in chapter 7 where He's just delivered the greatest sermon ever preached. We often talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which fills Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And then when you get to Matthew chapter 8, you have large crowds continuing to follow Jesus into the seaside community of Capernaum, demanding even more teaching and even more healing. Jesus certainly would have been exhausted by this pressure. Even, Peter, uh, even Peter's mother-in-law was healed that day before Jesus instructed his disciples to board a boat and to cross to the other side of the sea. We know that Jesus was often concerned with His disciples, with their well-being, with their health, with the fact that they often were overwhelmed and we read that they did not even have time to eat. And Jesus on this occasion gives them an opportunity to go to another place on the other side of the sea, which certainly would not have been congested, at least ideally, although we know that the crowd follows Him and meets Him there in anticipation of His arrival. Jesus, the one that we know, he says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head, was certainly exhausted in the flesh at the end of this long day. And there it is the storm that arises, where our Lord, who ought to be the one who is worthy of rest, has to wake up and again save this rather bumbling group of disciples who often fail to see exactly what it is Jesus came to do. And so as we look through this passage tonight, I want to focus on some principles that will hopefully help us to overcome the storms of life as we read about these apostles in the presence of our Lord literally overcoming a storm. I think there are many parallels and things that will hopefully be encouraging to us. Notice that in verse 23, the first thing we see these disciples do that I think is worthy of note 
is the fact that they, whoops, that doesn't look right. The fact that they get in the boat. They're willing to get in the boat. Verse 23 tells us that Jesus' disciples don't necessarily know everything that's going to occur the moment they step into the boat. They follow Jesus, in other words, even when it's not clear exactly what their destination is going to be. They don't know what's going to happen next, and yet for three years during Jesus' public ministry, these disciples are willing to follow Him through good times and through difficult times. And in the context of Matthew 8, the disciples were willing to leave the safety of Jewish territory on the western side of the Sea of Galilee and travel to an area that was famous for being desolate, that was famous for being full of Gentiles, the same region where in Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, we know that Jesus encountered a man who called himself Legion because he was full of evil spirits. They're leaving a safe haven, crossing the sea to an area that was certainly, if anything, more scary than the area they were already in. They were willing to follow Jesus, whatever it meant. They were willing to follow Jesus into the danger zone anyway. I'm sure that some would have taken an opportunity here to ask some questions, to have stopped in their tracks. Mark even tells us that other boats went with them across the sea, more than one. Luke mentions how the boats launched out in the parallels we see uh, both in Mark chapter 9, or, or rather Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. We read these other details that others were there with Jesus on this scary evening when they were launching out in faith. The reason I point that out is I think that today there might be some among us who would be afraid to leave the shore. We've heard about what's happened to other people on the other side of the sea. We've heard about what's happened to other people on the midst of the sea. We've heard about and we've demonstrated with our own eyes the way that some people have treated our Lord. And perhaps we're beginning to ask the question, well, if they've hurt Him, who's to say they won't hurt us, betray us, mislead us? And for that reason, we're just not sure that we really want to leave the sea, or that we, leave, we really want to leave the shore anyway. Because going out into the midst of the sea means that we take a risk. Perhaps one of the things made explicit in the narrative of Matthew chapter 8 is that in order for us to be protected from the storm, we must live life. I'm blessed to be the father of a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a three-month-old. And I know that there are lots of things that are discouraging in our world. And sometimes as young parents or older parents or grandparents, we want to insulate our children from all of that. The one thing we quickly discover is we're in the world but not of the world and there's no way to build a safety net, a safety zone necessarily all the time around our children, around our grandchildren. And so what we strive to do is equip them with the knowledge and know-how to make critical decisions when mom and dad aren't there, when grandma and grandpa aren't there. Well, that's one of the things Jesus does during His public ministry is He allows these apostles, these disciples, to learn some lessons. But in order for them to learn these lessons, they have to be willing to get in the boat. We've been equipped with so much, so many opportunities and so many blessings and so much knowledge. When Jesus says it's time to get moving, we've got to move. So many people spend their whole life studying the Word of God studying to show themselves approved as we've been commanded to do. But they never go. You know, the first part of the Great Commission, the first imperative is the word go. We've got to get up and get moving. We've got to take advantage of the opportunities before us. And had these apostles not gotten into the boat, they would not have learned the valuable lesson of following Jesus, the one who can bring peace in the midst of the storm.
Notice these apostles didn't get the forecast first. They didn't attempt to do any fishing on this excursion to the best of our knowledge. They simply got in the boat and they went. And that's saying something. Perhaps tonight there's someone here who's been standing on the shore wondering what it's like to go on a mission trip. Wondering what it's like to teach a Bible class. Wondering what it's like to study the Bible with someone who doesn't yet have the privilege of knowing the Lord Jesus. Perhaps it's time for us to launch out in faith and trust in the God who has blessed us with every good and perfect gift from above. James 1.17 reminds us. We have to be willing to get in the boat. Let me see if I can advance. We're just going to let that ride. Keep that title slide up there. Notice secondly, verse 24. We need to expect winds and waves. Verse 24 makes it clear that when you are on board with the Lord, when you are in the boat, we should know to expect trouble on occasion. We should know that life sometimes serves up wind and waves. It seemed as if their hope was lost in the midst of the sea. Just about as bad a scenario possible. They're in the middle of the night when a storm hits out of nowhere that caused even these seasoned fishermen to fear for their lives. Several of them had made a living on this sea. They certainly understood the risk of getting in the boat. But when they are afraid, it must have been really bad. Matthew tells us that the waves were covering up the boat. That's about as bad as it gets. Not to mention the fact that the, the leader of this group, Jesus himself, is asleep in the boat. Luke mentions a fierce gale of wind, how it descended on the lake as well. Have you ever decided you wanted to do something bold? You wanted to be courageous for the Lord? And as soon as you stepped into the boat, as soon as you launched out in faith, trouble was right there waiting on you. How frustrating is that? How discouraging is that? In the midst of the stormy sea, many of us fail to remember that Jesus is with us. When times are great, we feel great, we sing out, we pray, we participate in every ministry, but when the going gets rough, our walk with the Lord suffers. Tonight, aren't we thankful that Jesus is not asleep? He may not physically be present, but we have the promise of a God in Christ who said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be always. We have one uh, promise of God from the Great Commission, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I met a Christian recently who said that she wouldn't fly because of that command. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the I don't think that's what Jesus was saying at all. I think he's saying, wherever you go in the midst of life, I will be with you. And don't we know that individually and collectively, from time to time, we find ourselves in some pretty serious storms. The deficiency of integrity and values, an ethical transformation on the one hand, and a reluctance to stand for truth as revealed in God's Word on the other, can cause us to lose our moorings and be more frustrated than ever because of these storms. I would remind you of what Paul writes by inspiration in Ephesians 4.14. When he reminds all of us as Christians to grow up and no longer be kids tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He goes on to say what we should be doing is to speak the truth in love and to take advantage of every opportunity we have to look through those winds and to look past those waves to the goal. It amazes me how sometimes Christians are surprised by trials. We're surprised when trouble comes. Have we forgotten we have an enemy? Have we forgotten that we're not yet in our reward? 
that we're not yet in perfect fellowship with God in heaven above? We should expect trials. We should expect tribulation. doesn't mean we look out for them all the time and anticipate them, but we should not be surprised when trouble comes. When you're in the boat with the Lord, you can expect winds and waves. Number three, verse 25. Not only should we get in the boat, number one, expect winds and waves, number two. But third, verse 25 reminds us that in the midst of those winds and waves, we should call on Him. We should call on Him often. Mark tells us that Jesus was in the stern asleep on a cushion and the disciples awoke Him to say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? In Matthew they say, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. In Luke, he records these words as, Master, Master, we are perishing. Things got so bad that these disciples literally thought they were going to die. They could not handle this on their own. Although they had been down this road many times before, they were overwhelmed and they were in trouble and they thought they were going to die. They were literally, according to the description of the waves, in over their heads. You ever think you're going to die? You ever have a Job moment? Where you just feel like your world's caving in? Where you wonder, Lord, can I handle anything else? I think I'm going to die. If not physically, at least spiritually, I'm, I'm fearful. I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. These disciples were there. And you can tell by the tone of their petition to the Lord that they thought that any moment they might be breathing their last breath. So what do they do? Oh, we can handle this. We can ante up and kick in, and, and we can certainly handle this. this. We've been through storms before, right? They just, need, they just need a good leader, don't they? Well, they knew who the leader was. And when trouble came, what did they do? They called on Him. Why is it that sometimes we're too proud to call on the Lord, thinking we can fix it ourselves? You know, that's not the way God has designed us. We're relational beings, seeking something greater than ourselves. I believe that's what Paul alludes to in Athens in Acts 17, that even those religious Athenians with all their idols around them could look and long for something greater than themselves. And these disciples were in a position where they knew that something greater than themselves would have to solve this problem. God wants you to pray for Him. Pray to Him. He wants you to seek Him. He wants you to call on His name. And by the way, He knows we're in the midst of a storm. I'm comforted when I read the words of Revelation 2 and 3, the vision of those seven congregations represented by the seven golden lampstands. What's Jesus doing? He's not aloof from the situation. He's walking among those congregations and able through John the Revelator to describe exactly what's going on in those places. Have we forgotten that our God is with us even when we're in the midst of the storm? And yet why are we so reluctant when He wants us to call out to Him? To call on Him. we got to get in the boat. we got to expect winds and waves. We need to call on Him, verse 25. And then verse 26. Let's be reminded that in the midst of the stormy sea, we, just, we, we don't just call on Jesus. That's a great place to begin. But when Christians who are enduring storms can bear witness to the goodness of God, the world notices when Christians who are in the midst of a storm that may, they feel, be the end of their existence on this earth 
can still pour out petition and praise to God and worship in a powerful way, the world takes notice. This storm came to an end. And how did the disciples there react when Jesus got up and stopped the noise? What's ironic, in most of our descriptions of this event, especially in Mark chapter 4, the disciples were more afraid of the peace in the boat after Jesus calmed the storm than they were during the storm. Why? Because they had gotten exactly what they asked for. The God of heaven, through His Son, there in the boat with them, had caused that chaos to return to the order of Eden. We are living in a chaotic world. Since Genesis 3, the order of Eden has been reversed. And sin reigns. And Satan, the ruler of this world, wants to ensure that his minions faithfully follow him. But the good news of Scripture is our exile will come to an end. The storm will pass by as we often sing. But until then, what should we do? I want to get practical here. Some of you are in the midst of storms. It's amazing in an assembly. I think Paul knows this. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. How some can be having the greatest time of life with the birth of precious children and weddings and promotions and graduations. This is the season for a lot of those kinds of events. Well, at the same time, another member of the body could be going through some of the most horrific suffering of his or her life. So regardless of what we're dealing with in our own lives, how do we respond when storms come, first, we've got to wait. Oh, we don't like to wait. When fast food isn't fast enough, we don't want to wait. When the person in front of us on the road isn't going fast enough, we certainly don't want to wait. But what I'm talking about here is waiting on the Lord. We can't command this storm to stop. But we know that the sovereign God of heaven, working through His Son, Jesus although He does not work by our timetables, will work. He's promised us peace. He's promised us rest. He's promised that no temptation can overtake us. He's promised goodness, even if it's something we have to wait for. While we wait, secondly, we also worship. Despite our suffering, we worship. We take note of the creation that He has brought to bear in our own lives in our own environments, marveling at His character, marveling at His power. This is the appropriate response. And third, we remember that we're not alone in this storm and that the same storms we're experiencing as Christians, our friends and neighbors who are not in Christ are also experiencing. And the question is, can I as a Christian suffer differently than my friends and neighbors who do not have the hope of heaven, who do not have a relationship with Christ, who do not know in fullness the love of God that's found in a right relationship with Him. One of the opportunities we've had in this area is to meet needs after storms. We believe in serving our neighbors and showing love in the aftermath of tornadoes and fire and disaster and heartaches of all kinds and types. And it's great to go out and provide 
food and shelter. We had been in Baton Rouge 14 months before Hurricane Katrina hit. That affected us in a major way. We were there when Hurricane Gustav ripped through Baton Rouge. We were there in Hackleburg, Alabama and Tuscaloosa after the tornadoes went through there a few years ago. The flooding in Missouri, the tornadoes in Missouri, the tornadoes recently in Oklahoma City. Christians are in all those places and have been in many other settings responding to catastrophe, responding to disaster, providing food and clothing and shelter. But it's in the midst of the storm we can also provide something that meets their greatest needs. We can share with them the Prince of Peace. The one who can give us stability. You know, it's, it's amazing to me that there's a movement afoot to feed and to provide water and to clothe without ever mentioning the name of Christ. And I understand that in some settings that might be easier to do than others. But a hundred years from now, if the Lord allows the world to stand that long, the question I think will still be relevant, did we really meet their needs? When they're dead and gone, did we provide permanent shelter from the storm in Christ? Did we provide them an opportunity to partake of the bread of life and the living water? They need more than an umbrella and a raincoat to make it through this storm. We're talking about a storm that only the refuge of Jesus Christ Himself can get us through. Thus, showing true love is more than just handing out food and water. That's the start. Matthew 25, 31-46 makes it clear. Did you feed me? Did you give me drink? Did you, did you visit me while I was in prison? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you visit me while I was sick? Yes, Lord. But it's all in the context of sharing with them the greatest, the greatest peace they could ever experience. And I'm convinced Satan doesn't mind us helping people as long as we don't mention Jesus. There's one more admonition in Matthew 8. It may not be found explicitly in this particular passage, but I think it is a, a part of the overall message of Jesus Christ. Once you've come through a few of these storms, keep that perspective. You know, suffering can be a time where we learn a lot about ourselves, but more importantly, about our God. It's interesting to read Scripture and to note how many times God's people spent time in the wilderness. Why? Well, they learned a lot about themselves in the wilderness, but they certainly learned a lot about God in the wilderness. Who provided for them? When the leadership of Moses and Aaron and Miriam failed, God provided leadership. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, manna and quail and sweet water. Who did that? God did that. And in the midst of our suffering, keep that perspective. Keep God's blessings in mind, even in the difficult days. Don't forget His providential care for us. A few years ago, there's a photo, just imagine it with me, that uh, appeared in National Geographic. It was a time-lapse photograph of a thunderstorm from a mountaintop near the Smoky Mountains. From this mountain peak during a heavy thunderstorm, the picture captured a brilliant lightning display that had taken place throughout the storm's duration. And this time-lapse photography created a spaghetti-like web out of the individual bolts in that thunderstorm that only from that perspective could you see the fullness of the storm. In some ways, I've wondered if our sin presents itself before God in that way. We only see isolated individual acts. We only see bolts here and there. But God sees the overall web of our sinning. And what to us might seem insignificant or sporadic and passes with hardly a notice 
from God's panoramic perspective, perhaps creates a more dramatic display than we could possibly even imagine. Perhaps that's what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13, when he asked, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. What's the point? God is willing through the blood of Jesus Christ to erase all of that. To erase things that we perhaps cannot even remember with our finite thinking. He can erase that imposing picture of our sin as it's presented before the perfect God of heaven. And if He's powerful enough to do that, He's powerful enough to handle our storms and our trials and our temptations. As I've already mentioned, eight years ago today, I was not in West Tennessee. We were living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where we were blessed to serve the Goodwood Boulevard Church of Christ for six years. And I'll never forget August of 2005. What happened when Hurricane Katrina hit our shore? We were living in Baton Rouge, about 81 miles northwest of New Orleans. And when that storm hit and the levees failed, everyone was seeking higher grounds. Some made their way all the way to Houston, but many were stranded in Baton Rouge in the Clear Channel radio system. They were all broadcasting the same signal across all their radio stations. And people were calling in, begging for help. We don't have anywhere to go. We're stranded on the interstate. We need something to eat. There aren't any shelters. There aren't any hotels. We've got young children. We have elderly people in the car with us. Please help us. Our elders were so wise and so great. They said, Doug, why don't we get on the radio? And we had a, a gym with some classroom space in it. And they said, why don't we take some of the food in our freezers that's spoiling and, and cook that up and, and open it up to the first 100 people that, that show up? We, we didn't have any idea necessarily what we were getting into. We had never done anything like that before. In less than 30 minutes, we had 156 people in our fellowship hall. And the rest of the day and through the night, we were turning away cars and busloads of people, trying to find them other places to go, being overwhelmed by a need in our community that Christy and I and many others there had never seen anything like before. We went to setting up an infirmary in the church auditorium. Christy's a nurse practitioner. She was caring for people there. And we had all sorts of needs that I can't even list them all. Wouldn't want to. That the Lord allowed us to meet in the aftermath of that tremendous struggle we didn't view them as a problem or a nuisance. They, were, they became our friends. They lived in our church building for a solid month. And we as a congregation were blessed to help provide them with places to live and jobs and supplies. But most of all, hope. And we talked to them about Jesus. I'll never forget one night that we had a couple. They had been living together for about a decade. Had five kids together. Cornelius and Naomi. Good Bible names baptized in the Christ and married because of the hurricane, because they were there with us. I'll never forget those kids, those teens, those adults, those senior citizens who came in the midst of a storm and struggle and found love because we were able to share with them the love of God. And I know that many of you have had similar experiences in the aftermath of hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding and fires and desperate times. The point is, don't sell yourself short on what you can give others. As those who know storms, but more importantly, those who know the one who can calm the storm, we have an opportunity to give of our time and our possessions and our prayers and our service, but also 
Give them Jesus. In Matthew 8, perhaps some of the apostles as fishermen thought that the sea was their territory. That if trouble arose, they could certainly solve it. But weren't they quickly reminded that God is the one in control? And perhaps tonight as readers of this sacred text, we can see something they missed. Jesus has the divine power to bring the chaotic sea to order. Who is this that even the wind and sea obey Him? So tonight, let's get in the boat. Let's be willing to expect winds and waves, and when they come, call on Him. And as we await the day when there are no more storms, we wait, we worship, and we bear witness to the goodness of God, remembering the One who has brought us through those difficult days and seeking not to create storms in the lives of others, but rather help them through those same struggles. My, how faith helps in the time of a storm. My favorite verse in all the Bible is a verse that we don't study a whole lot, but it's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 3. Where Isaiah, looking forward to the Prince of Peace, says something that I want to conclude with tonight. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, our God will faithfully bring forth justice. Tonight, I know that perhaps some of you feel like a bruised reed or a dimly burning wick. One more thing may just break you. One more wind may just extinguish the little flicker of a flame you feel like you have left. I want to encourage you tonight that I've been there and I know that the majority of people in this room have been there. And we're thankful to the God of heaven who has brought us through those storms. I'm aware that in our area, in West Tennessee, the suicide rate among teens and young adults is higher than it's been in years. I just want to urge anyone tonight struggling with any of these types of storms to, re to remember and to find comfort in the fact that God is with us and He will bring us through difficult days if we will simply be faithful unto Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for Your love for us. We're so thankful for your provision. We're so thankful that you are a God who is with us on the difficult days and on the good days. And Father, tonight we're especially even grateful for the storms, the perspective they can provide, the discipline they can provide, but more importantly, the lessons we can learn as the disciples did in our text tonight about you and your provision and your peace. Father, may we reach out to others around us who are in the midst of these kinds of struggles. May we offer real hope that shows and speaks of your love in a way that's relevant and meaningful. Father, we pray tonight for those who are lost or perhaps just those who are struggling in the midst of storms. May we weep with them and offer them the hope that you have offered to us. And may we never forget the blessing of being a Christian. Thank you, Father, for the peace we have in you already and for the faith we have that you will provide meaningful peace for us forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.